Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. We hear a lot about student debt in the news these days, but why has college gotten so expensive to begin with? My colleague Beth Akers joins Political Economy to discuss that question and to weigh in on the Biden administration's moratorium on student loan repayment. Beth is a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where her work focuses on the economics of higher education. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Why has college gotten so expensive? I Sometimes I'll hear people who talk about, you know, I went to uh, University of California, something or other back in the 80s or the 1970s, and it cost about $1,000 or some ridiculously low number. Mm-hmm. And then you hear about uh, certainly with private universities, uh, you know, 80, maybe even $90,000 for uh, a year, the quote unquote estimated cost of attendance. Uh, it's certainly people's perception that college is a lot more expensive than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple things. So one, college definitely is more expensive than it ever was before. Um, if you ever go to the Hill and listen to the legislators, they'll talk about earning minimum wage and paying their way through college, which may or may not be true in each of their cases. But it was true, in fact, that that was once possible, that you could work through the summer at a relatively low wage, work part time during school, and you could afford to go to maybe a public or low cost institution. That was the case. It is no longer the case, even at our low cost institutions. So prices definitely have gone up by that metric. But there's something else that's really important to keep in mind. So when you hear that number, like the $90,000 to go to one of these elite institutions, part of that is marketing. So colleges have this model of pricing where they charge or they never charge it, but they have a really high sticker price. That's the number that they call, that's what they call the number that they put on the website, that $90,000. And then they pair that with a really high discount model. So if you've had a child go to college recently, they may have applied to one of these places and lo and behold, they got a great institutional scholarship. They're so excited to have your child come to the school um, that they're going to give you $30,000 off or $40,000 off. And so this is essentially marketing. Um, What it's made it look like is that prices have gone up a lot faster than they have because um, as the sticker price has gone up, um, so have discounts. So the net price, which is this price after discount, has also gone up really quickly, not as quickly as a lot of those scary numbers. So those are kind of a couple of fact checks on the narrative. Then in terms of, you know, there's a lot of theories out there about why college has gotten Mm -hmm. so expensive. You know, you'll hear... um, politicians or cultural leaders talk about the bureaucracy on college campuses getting huge. If you talk about things like the climbing walls are getting huge, or then there's still those DEI um, offices that are huge and all of that is contributing to the cost. The research kind of shows that none of those factors alone is a major driver of what's happening. And so I like to fall back on economics and say, you know, why is the cost going up so high? Um, If you think about the way we talk about college in this country, um, we sell it as if it's the golden ticket to the American dream. Um, We're starting to suggest that there is room for some skepticism from what colleges are selling. But for a long time, 
we've had leaders telling people college basically at any cost is worth it. Um, and historically that was right. <laughs> but what's happened is that we've just ballooned demand for college so that students are willing to pay whatever price it takes to get there. Um, colleges know this, they're able to raise prices and then add on to the fact that we have a really convoluted system of subsidizing education through the loan program, through the grant program. And what that means is that students often don't even know how much they're paying when they go to college. Right. So, you know, I tend to lean on this as probably one of the more important drivers of the increase that we've seen over time. Um, you know, rather than kind of one of these pet excuses as to, you know, the things we don't like about college campuses and how that's the thing that's made it too expensive. Uh, if I see a number saying this is the inflation rate for college tuition, it's gone up X percent over the past 20 years, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Is that the is that the sticker price? Do you happen to know? Or is that sort of does that include the discount? Do you have any idea like what that includes? Well, we know that the net price, which is that price that students are actually paying, has grown faster than inflation in any other major segment of the economy. So that is true. But then if you hear someone citing a statistic, of course, it depends on their politics. <laughs> if they're trying to make it seem like the cost of college has gone up too quickly, then they're going to cite the number with the sticker price. And if the alternative is true, then they're going to use net price. <laughs> um, you know, folks are are conveniently omitting those details um, since that that nuance is lost on most observers. Um, and this this notion of a, a sticker price, like you're not going to pay that uh, price. Like I'm like I'm aware of that. But having, you know, uh, having gone through a lot of uh, sort of, you know, college orientation sessions at high schools with a lot of my kids, it is very clear to me that there's a lot of people who have no idea that that's the case, especially if this maybe they're maybe they didn't go to college and maybe mm -hmm. this is their first kid. And they'll look at that sticker price and they'll say, one, they want they want one, they'll think like that's a ridiculously high number. We can't mm -hmm. afford it. And on top right. of it, not only will they accept that as the number, I think, especially if you're a little lower on the uh, income spectrum, like they grossly underestimate how much financial aid their kids mm -hmm. can get. And it, it could be actually a very low cost proposition or almost no cost proposition. Right. Right. Yeah. So we know that the lowest income students are the ones who are eligible for the greatest discounts from the institutions. They also get the highest aid from federal programs and state programs like the Pell Grant or any need-based state programs. So it's definitely the case that we've got a lot of lower income uh, marginal students who are on the cusp of not going to college at all, who are probably really turned off by this pricing system. And I think that's really concerning. There's so many ways in which we need to make pricing of college more transparent. I mean, it's better for this to actually function like a marketplace where we can get um, consumers demands like exerting pressure on the prices that institutions charge. Also making these lower income students actually aware that the college may be within reach for them. Um, in fact, this was um, kind of a talking point during the free college movement. A lot of people were arguing, hey, the lowest income students don't know they're eligible for all this aid, so we have to just make it free. So they can just know it's free and then they won't have to worry about it. I think that's probably uh, going a little too far. I think there are other ways to make uh, the low cost actually. Well, I, I just don't think there, there's not, I'm not even sure there's much of an, I don't know, but my my impression is that uh, whatever attempt is made to inform these families 
mm-hmm. that you be that there might be a surprising amount of aid. And yeah, you're you're you know, your kid can certainly afford to go to the most expensive state school, mm-hmm. probably in your state. I just don't think there's enough outreach to to people. I don't I don't know if anyone ever raises that as an issue because I just saw too many parents who who at this point should have been well along in the college selection and interviewing process who seemed utterly oblivious to that point. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly the case. I mean, we have like this big push with the Democratic Party to make community college free, for example. That was one of Biden's initiatives. Um, on on average, community college is already free. <laughs> people are getting refunds of their Pell Grants, right? Um, so people don't know that. And the rhetoric about college being so expensive and needing all these bailouts for student borrowers is kind of going against the direction of the information that we need to go into these hands. There was a really great study, I believe it was done in Michigan, um, where researcher basically informed a bunch of low-income students like, hey, you can go to school for free. And believe it or not, they applied and went to school at higher rates <laughs> when they got that information. Um, so, you know, it's a great example of where the resources are already being spent in a way that's, you know, progressive and appropriate for lowering the barriers. But we need to make people know they exist so that the subsidies are actually doing the job that they're designed to do. Yeah. And you mentioned like this huge demand for college in which mm-hmm. people think like if you don't if you don't go to a, four, uh, you know, a traditional four year college, basically you're. That's it. You're lost. Yep. You've missed you've missed your opportunity in this life uh, to have it to have any kind of life. Yeah. But um, you're saying that perhaps, you know, that 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 view has begun to erode uh, a little bit. I mean, can you decisively say too many Americans are going to college? Oh, I think too many Americans believe that they have to go to college in order to mm-hmm. have achieved the American dream. And there was a great line in the um, debates. Um, I guess it was before the it went, Pete Buttigieg was on a debate stage and somebody asked him, you know, why is college so expensive or how, how do we like increase college affordability? And he said something that I thought was really fantastic and not often heard in that sort of setting. And he said, I think we need to make it more affordable to not go to college. And I thought that was an excellent point because to me, what that means is investing in other workforce solutions, right? We know Americans need skills. They need access to a career that allows them to support themselves and their families. College can't be the only technology that exists to impart skills into people, right? Apprenticeship programs, training programs. We need to celebrate those things as a credible way of being an American and taking care of your family. Um, So, you know, I think it's great to celebrate education. I wish we also celebrated those things and then let people sort into what they want to do. I don't want to be in the business of telling people they should or should not go to college. I was a person who was going to go to MIT and I was going to a major, I was going to do a double major in computer science and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And I I had a very high test score, a very high probability that I'm going to do well. I probably should not be too frightened I would guess the odds are pretty good. I'm going to be able to pay back those loans and this might be a turn out to be a very good investment. For whom are big student loans a poor investment? Mm, yeah, so I'd say the space that I'm most concerned about with big student borrowing are the students who don't finish their degrees. So this is a large and growing share of the student population. I mean, the, you know, the The business model, if you will, of taking out loans to go to school is that you're making an investment in yourself. You cross the finish line, you get that degree, get the credential, whatever it is, and then you've got a big increase in earnings power, which makes the repayment of that debt affordable, right? Simple model. 
if you don't cross the finish line, if you don't get that degree, you don't get much of an earnings bump at all. What we see is that most of the return education comes from crossing the finish line. Problem with that is that you can get yourself into a lot of debt and that debt essentially feels like credit card debt when it's not paired with the additional earnings that comes from having a credential. So we've got a growing group of people who are in that um, group. You know, we have a growing safety net for borrowers who are in those circumstances. We've made it over the past decade such that if you have a low income, you're not really on the hook to repay your student loans in full. And we don't need to go into the, the details of how those programs work, but they're actually decently generous. Not that anybody's been paying their loans for a couple of years since we put that all on pause at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. But we've got these safety nets that in theory should work pretty well. They definitely need some work to be streamlined to make it so that people who are in that situation of having invested and borrowed to do so, but didn't see a return, uh, we need to make sure those people are protected without them having to jump through hoops to, to get there. You could be a computer science major and you're one credit and you're one credit short and that and that credit is physical education. It's still very bad not to finish. You could have finished all yeah. those major courses. Who knows? Maybe you, you could still be a good programmer even without that. And yeah. I think a lot of parents, though, they feel so that if they don't major in just the right thing, mm -hmm. the student loans are also a bad investment. So if they go to a great yeah. college and they finish, but again, instead of majoring in economics or math or something, and they ended up majoring in, majoring in French literature, mm -hmm. that they'll have a huge debt and they'll be, you know, that major wouldn't have gotten them very much. I mean, I think a lot of parents right. certainly think that. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. Look, if you go to Harvard, you go to MIT, you can pretty much major in whatever you want and then kind of pick where <laughs> pick your poison after you finish, choose whatever career path you want, right? That's kind of how it works. If you go to a big state institution like I did, you probably better look pretty carefully about where the graduates from different majors are getting jobs. Um, you know, some of it's just common sense. If you think you want to be a social worker, for example, I would not borrow to go to um, Ithaca College where I started to go to school and then get your master's degree from Columbia University where I have my graduate program from um, because you're never going to make the money to justify that as an investment. Now, if you've got the cash and it's just fun for you to go to those places that are expensive, then by all means, go and do it. Um, but we need to think about this like it's an investment. And um, I wrote an entire book about this. It's called Making College Pay. And the idea was just that there is data out there to help people make decisions along these lines. We haven't encouraged people to do that. I think parents are kind of feel guilty telling their students, 30 young people, anything other than just follow your passion. Um, because we kind of sold that as a, for a long time. At least that's the message that I got. And I remember first time taking out those student loans and thinking like, wait a minute, is my passion going to pay this back? But but I'm an economist. <laughs> so I don't expect everybody to, to have that internal dialogue, but we need to have that as an external dialogue, telling people, you know, when you think about how much you're borrowing, um, this is like borrowing to start a business, but the business is yourself. And so you can't do it blindly, um, but there's a lot of great opportunities out there. Um, but I do push people to use the data. And also importantly, it, it matters more what you study than where you go. You know, we see so much emphasis on what college students pick at the end of high school. You know, they're doing the social media reveals and all that stuff. We celebrate college choice so much um, and put way too little emphasis on major and really what your plans are for after you finish. Okay. This is this is a, I bet this might be the kind of question you'd get on an airplane if you're sitting next to someone and somehow <laughs> it's revealed what you do they they might say 
Someone I would never, say, I would never allow that to come out when I was on an airplane. <laughs> under under the unlikely scenario that would happen, someone might say, "Okay, you know what? You know, if college if college is important, and we think, you know, we, you know, we hear about, uh, you know, we need to have, you know, it's so we need to have more smart people in this country. We need to even bring in more smart people from other countries. Why don't we just make college mm-hmm. just totally free? If you can get into a state college, at least, you know, mm-hmm. um." pay it all just that uh, you go there and maybe give the mm-hmm. kid five years to finish and uh mm-hmm. find the whole thing room board tuition climbing wall uh fajita bar <laughs> everything why why is okay. that not a good idea if education is so important good question so if we're gonna have the fajita bar we're gonna have the lazy river the climbing wall all of that i'm gonna say okay well we're gonna have to change the system about who that that determines who gets into college and who gets to go. Okay, so instead of the system that we have today, where we have kind of a school for everybody, one that matches everybody's, you know, academic ambitions and abilities, um, I'm just going to take the top 5% of every high school graduating class. And those people can go to this free system that we created, because, you know, we can't have a universal system that serves everybody, we just would be, you know, short of resources, and um, we wouldn't be able to do it. So, right, so first, said, you need a limit, you need to limit, <laughs> yeah. have some sort of barrier. So, so everybody doesn't decide to take a five year vacation. Right. So we've got a rash in the education. Second, when we do that, we lose out on what I think are the advantages that come from competition in higher education. So Higher education is not a perfect marketplace, right? We talked about some of the problems with pricing before that make it not such that it it works perfectly. But there are aspects of institutions competing with each other or trying to define themselves to fill a niche in the market such that they can better serve students. That's a product of this being a marketplace that is not centrally managed by a government entity. And so in the absence of um, individual control, private ownership of institutions, whether it be for profit or nonprofit, you lose that and you get a system that looks more homogenous. Maybe it looks more like the state system and the community college programs that we have today in absence of the private sector. Community colleges have the worst outcomes of pretty much any set of institutions outside of the poor performing for profits that we saw um, grow up out of the 90s. so you know, that's not the system I want. Um, I believe in the diversity that's created by the competition. I believe that some of the best institutions that we have today have been created by the pressures that come from competition on the institutions. Student loans, currently there's this pause mm-hmm. uh, on, on paying back. How does this story end? Is it is it the forever pause? Does the pause stop? Uh, there's a Supreme Court case about forgiving student loans. Uh, a lot of moving pieces here. Can you yeah. navigate a little bit through through them as we get toward the end? Yeah. So a lot is up in the air here. So at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, President and Beth, Trump- let me interrupt you in saying in no <laughs> way, in no way does this reflect any personal interest I have or any of my many, many daughters with student loans. This is purely theoretical for the people anyways oh continue. yes yes of course it's 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 theoretical for so many people <laughs> in this conversation yeah. um so we saw that the student loan repayment was put on hold at the onset of the covid pandemic it has the 
that um, initial pause was set to expire many times over now, but um, President Trump once and then President Biden several times now have extended that pause. Um, the rationale was that economic circumstances justified us not having student loans being repaid. This is when we've had unprecedentedly low unemployment. So it's sort of a laughable argument at this point and with the COVID pandemic officially coming to an end, national emergency coming to an end. Um, this is very clearly a political maneuver at this point. So the White House is waiting on a decision from the Supreme Court to see whether or not the huge efforts to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt will be allowed or whether that will be overturned, in which case they will be back to the drawing board and thinking about what to do on student debt. Um, you know, the, the White House has said that the pause will come to an end. It will come to an end soon after the court decides on their cancellation program, whether or not that's legal. Um, I'm skeptical that that will actually happen. I think there's tremendous political pressure on the administration to continue the pause as it is, especially going into an election year. I don't think anybody wants to be responsible for the one turning the spigot back on of student loan repayment. Um, whether it's right or it's wrong economically, people don't wanna pay their student loans. I get that. <laughs> um, and I think it's gonna be incredibly challenging politically to get this started again. Um, at the same time, there have been some other efforts that will further undermine the functioning of the student lending program. So we're sort of in limbo here and waiting to see if we will get back the student loan program as we knew it before the pandemic or this series of pauses on repayment paired with you know, further interventions will end up dismantling the system altogether. And I think that's a, entirely possible. And uh, I know you're not a legal analyst, but what is sort of the you know, consensus guess about what the Supreme Court's going to do. Is there, I mean, what would be the surprise? I mean, what is the expected outcome and what is, what would be a surprising outcome? Well, the, uh, political composition of the court at this point, I think, is probably the best indication of which way we'd go on this because there was nothing during the hearings to indicate any significant departure from the political priors of the justices. And so um, based on that really alone, um, I would be expecting that the court does not allow the White House to cancel the loans as they are planning to. Um, so uh, I, it would be a surprise to me and I think others, um, if if it were allowed to go forward, um, but time will tell. Oh, time will tell, and my family text chain will tell because if that <laughs> happens, that thing's going to blow up. Beth, thank you so much. This is outstanding. Thank you so much. Good to talk with you. 